I've interviewed two women who owned a lesbian bar once. They had to go mixed. And it's unlike gay men as well, because gay men, even if they Continue couple up, still go out. Because, you know, the whole setup's different. Yeah, that makes sense. So we just need to stop pouring our whole lives into one person and get out and drink in public. Here, here. I'm Kathleen Stock. And I'm Julie Bindle. And this is the Lesbian Project podcast, all the sapphic traffic for anyone who wants a bit more lesbian in their life. Hi, Kath. Hiya, how are you? I'm okay. We've got a guest today, haven't we? We do, uh, Lydia Perovich. So welcome to the show, Lydia. Uh, We're delighted to have you here. And uh, for those of you listening that don't know, uh, Lydia is a writer, and a commentator on all sorts of things. She's written three books, um, and the the latest one was out last year. Is that right? I think twenty two. Twenty two, right? Um, and that's called uh, Second Thoughts. Uh, is that right? Lost it. Lost in Canada. Immigrants' second thoughts. Yeah. Ah, okay, mm-hmm. excellent. So we're going to ask you all about that. Um, but you're you're not from Canada are you so you're from montenegro is that right yeah yes and i grew um, up some some of you will remember the country called yugoslavia mm-hmm. which existed mm-hmm. as a kingdom after world war one and then was occupied during world war ii and the partisan communist partisans created their own system they were the only one uh, fighting the occupation so they created their, their own system and then took over after the world war ii mm-hmm. and um that lasted for about 40 years, just like the rest of the uh, Iron Curtain, but we were not within it. I get, this is a very complicated question where I'm from, so I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I just go all the way in history. But yes, uh, 89 <laughs> comes, the Iron Curtain falls, it's greeted in other East European countries, but in Yugoslavia it got very complicated because national, ethno-nationalism, which was suppressed by communists, and it, it is a curse of the region, uh, rose. So pro- mm-hmm. pluralism came with ethno-nationalism and then the civil wars. And so in 99, when the last war ended with NATO bombing of Kosovo, Serbia and Montenegro, um, I got a scholarship for this Canadian university and I said, okay, I'm, I'm going. And it, hundreds of thousands of other people have left and keep and yeah. keep leaving the region. It's still quite an unfortunate region in that mm-hmm. it's losing it net net loss of population continues okay so you um were growing up there um you left when you were around 20 i believe yeah. and right and I think uh, I'm roughly your age right um obviously we're not going to say what that is exactly yeah gen x's um, so, but what was it like growing up there before you uh, got came to Canada? You know, you were you out as a lesbian then? No, it's just the thing uh. that, that I mean, I didn't know what I was. I was this tr- struggling well into my twenties with the question of what I was. What was I? Was I bi? Okay. Was I real? So you try men, and then so was it? But um, I don't come with back then. We didn't have a dating culture. Like you, like you have mm-hmm. in, in the West, where you try people on for size and you move from people, from a person mm-hmm. to person. And it just didn't exist. You would meet a potential partners or friends and then maybe have two relationships or three relationships before settled, settling down or one relationship. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, there was just not dating. There was no dating scene. And there's definitely that was not. Heterosec I mean, there was no heterosexual dating, are you saying? No, dating in general, yeah. Maybe it existed in, in large cities where you have uh, like millions of people. But in small towns, you wouldn't just date as a team. It okay. just wasn't. And so I assume that there weren't any lesbian out lesbians or there weren't no. many out lesbians either. No. And I don't, I think communist countries was sort of, it was presumed it didn't exist. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. There were rumors about, you know, this theater artist, that theater artist, but it was just a thing that didn't happen. Uh, it was originally thought it's sort of a bourgeois decadence type of thing. And like, it's just, didn't, it just didn't exist. And later with pluralism and all kinds of ideas uh, uh, came into the region. And so people started coming out as it were. But I think right. I mean, if, you, if you see, if, I mean, now you would meet people from more traditional cultures uh, where there was no coming out. So we're kind of close to generation of homos that, that was before the boomers. But there was no coming out. I think the boomers were the first ones that came out loud and proud and coming out was a thing that had to be done. We were more like the previous, like, you know, Benjamin Britten generation and then interwar generation earlier. There was no, it was, there was no rite of passage that's called coming out. It, just, it was kind of don't ask, don't tell. And mm -hmm. Friendly people will know. And just thinking about the consequences for those that were targeted as lesbians, assumed to be lesbians, what would happen to those women? Or was it just never mentioned or even suspected? I don't think I've ever seen that. I don't think I've, it was just not on the radar. Wouldn't even, wouldn't be even used. It was just non-existent, completely underground. And I, I was reading, I, I mean, East Germany apparently had an underground pink triangle mm. scene but i don't think other countries did in, in communist how did people meet they didn't meet i suppose i don't see i, I think that history remains to be written but communist history of eastern europe is not the sexiest yes. topic so the, not a lot of scholars <laughs> are studying just the communist communist history of eastern europe so it would be interesting but there are very few books i know of one that that one from germany but other than that, I don't think there was just any information about it. Mm. I have been um, actually because you you sent some notes to us beforehand, and I'd have watched a video that you sent us of um, an Albanian phenomenon um, called the Sworn Virgin phenomenon. So um, now I just watched the video, and this, as I understand it, and you can tell us more about it. It's um, a tradition in Albania where women can um can <laughs> I don't know I don't want to use the the language of LGBT you know they can assign themselves male basically um <laughs> and as long as they take a vow of celibacy they can then basically act as in all the social roles as far as I could see that a male would normally act well except um, for they, um sex with women and marriage with women yeah. Well, I was yeah. going to ask, but let's get, oh, before we get to that, <laughs> could you just say a bit more about this tradition? Um, it's called Banish, Banisha, or I can't, I don't Banisha, know. Banisha, yes, or Sword Banisha. Virgin. It, it existed in Montenegro too. Montenegro and Albania share that, but I, I watched, I think mid-90s, there was a TV uh, segment about the last one in Montenegro, which was very old, very sort of, but Albania does, still does have them, and, and the photographers from other countries come and, and, and film them and take pictures of them, and, but fewer and fewer. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose 
sons were always highly prized in the region. And let's say you have four daughters, five daughters, seven daughters, you're very unfortunate. And one of them, you're fine if one of them lives as a man. They need, I don't know if it's physical security, maybe the women were more physically apt, the Burmeshes were more physically, uh, I don't know, but it, it, it provided some sort of a protection. And this woman would completely adopt male clothes, completely cut her hair short, uh, go to the barber, not to the hair, to the hair salon, uh, buy men's clothes, smoke and drink. That's that's another big difference. And would also mm -hmm. uh, would sit with men, would socialize with men, and uh, in the summer would take the cattle, which probably be sheep, uh, higher up in the mountain and live on her own. Uh, take, take, tending the uh, the sheep and goat and stuff because a I only learned about this recently. Why would they go up, uh, separate themselves from the families? Um, uh, pastures are better and it's less hot, and so it was sort of a part of the job. You you would go uh, in the summer and then you come back. But yeah, the, mm -hmm. the the part of part of the unwritten script is you're not you're asexual. You you're not dating women. You're not dating men. Absolutely, nobody would find you attractive. So you're one of the men, and some would even be misogynist because they wouldn't find they wouldn't consider themselves men. So this this woman mm -hmm. who was interviewed in this TV segment was like, oh, I just I'm so great grateful not to have been a woman. When there's a conquering there's a conquering army coming, they just go run around screaming. They don't take up the arms. It's it's a very warrior culture. In, in that. Citizenship is connected to whether you're willing to give your life for your for your uh, for your society and for your family so it's an interesting phenomenon i, I find them incredibly totally inappropriate i find them so sexy but they would just be, they would they would recoil from women liking them i think no there's an interesting question to ask isn't it because in albania for example where i have seen some of these women some years back they lived in the northern rural parts of Albania, which is, of course, governed, ruled by canon law, which is like Sharia, a set of social rules that women adhere to. And everyone will appreciate this. Anyone that knows anything about canon law knows that this is not good for women. And so these women are given a kind of limited freedom, in my view, my limited view of this, because they are unacceptable to marry. This is what I was told when I interviewed the families. They have mm -hmm. maybe been, they weren't conventionally attractive. Perhaps they were infertile. Maybe they were lesbians and it was discovered. The arranged marriage that had been already set up from birth, something went wrong. And so therefore they were exiled because of course they couldn't just hang around in the house being a spare part because traditionally, exactly like Sharia, um, women, girls are supposed to leave home the second they marry and live with the father, the um, the family of the, the husband. So it's mm. not exactly what you would call queer liberation, is it? Because I'm sure that some of the trans ideologues would have this, that these women were in fact trans men. And please, I mean, what do you think about that, Lydia? I've read some people claiming it as a queer identity. I, I, that's completely silly. That is completely silly. <laughs> It's a role that's been given to you and you take it, it's it's sort of a duty. Uh, and I don't, would they find, would they have found much pleasure in their role? They must have. They didn't have to dedicate I, themselves 
raising kids and doing all the domestic work. And they smoke and drink and always <laughs> got to be partying if there was any partying to be had. Yeah. But it doesn't, look like, it doesn't look like they have a great party life to me. No. And from what I was told because of the work that I was doing in Northern Albania at the time, and in particular, actually, a, a town called Fear, which you may know of, where trafficking is as big an industry as sugar is in Moldova. The women, of course, are subject to and at risk of sexual violence from men in the way that very obvious lesbians are elsewhere, whether it's South Africa or or across Europe. And I don't think it's a big party. I mean, the smoking and drinking would definitely be a perk, but it, it looks to me like the lives of these women, in some ways, as you say, Lydia, yes, you don't have to raise children or be under the 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 rule of, of a man. But is this really something that women want? Can they not just live as single women without having to play this role that everybody knows is a role. Yeah, I think that BBC uh, a segment found some who lived in an urban area. So that might have yes. been a bit different. I, I will put that in the show notes. I should also say to listeners, just as an aside, that um, if you're watching this on the Substack, um, up until recently, you haven't been able to see the show notes because for some reason they weren't there, but I've put them in all, all in retrospectively and they will be there today. So we'll put a link to this BBC documentary that Lydia is talking about, which shows, which interviews at least four of these women. It's fascinating. And actually, yeah. I'd have to say some of them look like they're really enjoying themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, fair. <laughs> fair That's enough. Very fair point. Respect. <laughs> and I, I was going to ask you. There. Some of them look Yeah, sharp. yeah. You're right, they're very stylish. Um, but so I was going to ask you, Lydia, because I visited Hungary uh, is it two years ago now. I know, so Eastern Europe, I know it's not the Balkans, but um, I talked to some lesbians there who were saying that everything, you know, things have changed a lot, obviously. Um, it's more acceptable, even under Orban, to be a lesbian and out. But at the same time, they feel stuck because a lot of Western NGOs um, are coming in and saying, well, we'll give you lots of money for your woman only, your 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 domestic violence shelter or your, um, your LGBT project, but you have to accept our conditions and the conditions are that you say trans women are women. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to adopt all the sort of Anglo-American language and concepts around that. And these women were saying, you know, this is a kind of colonialism, basically. Mm. These are not our, our concepts. It's not the way we would think of things. And I was very struck. There was actually, I went to a conference there. There was a lesbian from Albania speaking. She was completely, as far as I could see, had kind of bought into it all. But she was using, no matter who the speaker was at this conference, they all seemed, and they were all, a lot of them were from Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe. They seemed to use the same cliched vocabulary about LGBT queerness and um, inclusion and diversity. And so in other words, this whole thing has just been imported in. And I wondered if that was something that resonated with you about that region now. I have noticed uh, there's a handful of LGB plus T, some have added the extensions, uh, organized uh, NGOs uh, in, in Montenegro. Uh, 
I've seen some adoption of self-ID ideas, but they're so, they have nothing to do with anything. They would, like these kids would come out and have a press conference and demand sex change operations as part of the uh, healthcare system, no questions asked, mm. basically demanding. So there would be a press conference, nobody would take it seriously. They would have it mm -hmm. on their seat, like we advocated for this. And I don't think it'll take. It's, I mean, the languages no. are different. There's impossibility or non-binary in most languages because yeah. all nouns yeah. and, and adjectives have gender. And if it's an it, mm -hmm. it's it's a thing. It's not a it's not alive. So mm -hmm. I mean, forcing non-binary Spanish and French and, and South Slav languages that's just not going to work. So there are not. I haven't noticed any non-NBs. It's possible. It doesn't work. Um, so there's, I mean, there's still LGB. Um, mm -hmm. They don't face as much open, I mean, I use this word very carefully, homophobia. Uh, they do from, from, interestingly, it's from people around the church, like Serbian Orthodox Church is very influential in the region. And it's poll after poll. It's weirdly very popular too, because it's such a volatile region and they find something to believe in and to cling to. And so there's this very traditionalist, as, as you've seen in Russia, Orthodox churches, I have no qualms about participating in political life, taking sides, mm -hmm. being very nationalist. So uh, mm -hmm. there's some, like there was, there was a lawyer a few years ago who was threatening on his Facebook page that, I'm fine with gay couples as long as they don't kiss in front of my kids, in which case I will smash your faces in. Like open homophobia, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But that's, that's rarer and rarer. Now, it's interesting what you say about the Im import of these things. I mean, every region had to have its pride parade. Every new of the, like, of the states of the Western Bulk, like why? Now I'm thinking about why? Why would you have to have a pride parade mm -hmm. in 1990? Not okay. That's too early. Maybe through two thousand and three or four, they started. And I think Bosnia right. decided no, this, we're just not going to do this. But other countries. Why, did. So I what? Mean, do you think it wasn't necessary? What's your What's your thoughts about I that? I mean, I think it's. I was on its side, of course. I mean, the first one in Montenegro, which you probably read in that Miss magazine that I did with the with the three lesbians uh, from Montenegro. It was more police than walkers. And there was threats of violence right. ahead of it. And, and then the year after, again, more police than actual participants in the parade. And then the Western embassies joined and then some politicians joined and it's sort of getting mainstream now. I, and there are now actually more people than police, like a couple of last years. More so does that not suggest that it was helpful? I, I, I'm of two sides. I'm of two minds. Yeah, I think, yeah, I guess it depends what country you're in. I totally agree with the Bosnian state should not do it. Because mm -hmm. it's a, such, a, such, a, such a dry powder keg uh, with three different religious fundamentalists, essentially. Highly Muslim, highly Catholic, and highly uh, Serbian Orthodox. And they probably decided, no, this is counterproductive. We're just going to do our education and we're not going to pride so I don't think Sarajevo had ever a pride parade. So Zagreb right. had it, Belgrade had it, uh, Montenegro had it, Bosnia said no, not not yet. So not right. everything is blindly imported, but I mean, I was also struggling with the word queer when I was using it. How do you even translate the word in 
local languages. So this was a piece, just to explain to listeners, it's a piece that we'll link to that you wrote in Ms. Magazine about um, going back to the Balkans and interviewing lesbians or queer women, as you put it, and uh, how things had changed for them. Yeah, because there was a period, I thought nobody would ever come out and I stopped looking. And then maybe 10, 15 years after I moved to Canada, I started looking again and I noticed there were a lot of women. And so, wow, this is interesting. And so mm -hmm. through friends of friends and word of mouth, and you find, like I tried many, men. there are actually many more, but they wouldn't be interviewed. I found these three women right. and they, they talked and they were out immediately. And it's just a lesson in courage, really. I'm thinking, did you put an ocean between your culture <laughs> and yourself so you can come out? Like what's a change? The Latin moved into a different language. This is the way to deal mm -hmm. with it, I suppose. And what was their definition of queer? How did they use it and what did they mean by it? Was it lesbian and bisexual essentially or something That's else? It. That's it. And right. I think it was fancy. It had Western liberal democratic, you know, connotations. And some of them do have, did read some of the queer studies through some of the uh, alternative education institutions and their own universities. But I don't, it's not, I mean, it's even weird when they use LGBTQ and it's often said in English. Mm -hmm. It's not said in local language, which would be LGBT. It's usually said as LGBT. And I mean, how do you win right. people over if you, if you talk about it? Exactly. It's like a mystical, mystical language. Just think about that Burnesha grandma who's sitting up there and she's hearing LGBT has no idea what you're talking but also, mm. I mean, it, it's just really confusing. I've had people it say is. to me, uh, oh, so we're both LGBTQ. And I'm saying, but we don't have time to be all of those things. <laughs> I like that line. I'm going to and you it. are who you are. You know, of course, we're not LGBTQ. We're just yeah. not. Yeah, another sort of downside to this um, colonization of these countries with this kind of language is that... Um, People like Putin, for instance, or Orban um, in Eastern Europe can can pick. Once you say LGBTQ, whatever, then basically you're, as we all know, um, a hostage to fortune if you're an L or a G about whatever the T and the Q do in Ooh. public. So what Orban likes to do is to go and find the most egregious examples of Stonewall law or something and then feed it back as this is representative of the yes. group. So, and I believe in Albania, actually, there, I think I'm right in saying that there was a big scandal at one point because the politicians started to um, say that uh, there was a drive to get rid of the words mother and father and to and to replace them with parent one and parent two, which was went down extremely badly with the Orthodox Church, for instance, and in lots of other um, conservative bodies. And I mean, whether or not that was true in Albania, I'm pretty sure it wasn't from what you've said. It's obvious that they uh, people who want to cause division can just look to the West and say, well, look what's happening there. This yeah. must be, you know, even if we give a, a few rights to the LGB, this will be the thin end of the wedge or something. But, I mean, to be honest, it's not just Putin and the like that use that, that conflate all of those things. It's some no. of the single issue, rather bigoted, in my view, homophobic campaigners in this country and in the US. Well, oh, yes, but I mean, that's the inflated. false teeming effect. That's yeah, the that's false right. teeming effect. But it has, but what I found interesting is that we are aware of the 
the negative consequences here, but you don't think that they're going to be used, you know, even in places like Albania, where there isn't, as we've just established, that much um, LGBT mm-hmm. nonsense, but what little there is is being used to to make a political point against them. Um, I'm, I'm noticing that a little bit happening in Serbia. Um, mm-hmm. Not in Montenegro as much, which is currently run by technocrats who want to look very EU friendly. Uh, so they're not stoking those fires. Uh, right. But um, no, it's, uh, it's, an, it's I think slightly better than, than with Orban in, in the Balkans in that it's not so much front and center. Well, I mean, there's one, there's one, uh obvious difference that you have told us about before that the prime minister in serbia is a lesbian i just cannot process it (laughs) tell us everything go through (laughs) it for us and our listeners she so i mean it's so both serbia and montenegro and and, uh, various other countries have civil partnerships so you you can get you can get married but you cannot adopt neither in montenegro nor in serbia nor various other countries so serbia recently had the law banning, just like Georgia Meloni's party, basically. Uh, you can be in a couple, it's fine, but you are not allowed to have IVF. You're not allowed to have any kind of artificial insemination. So this Serbian prime minister who's been married, they show up together at events, which is an interesting, I don't know how the party itself processes it. How the, I guess pink washing, I suppose you can say it's that. But they show up, she, she would go to chat shows occasionally. She would talk about her life with her wife. It's very nice, but she's a, she's a complete apparatchik. I, I don't think she has much autonomy in, in the Vucic government. So they did, what the two of them did is they went abroad for IVF and she voted in favor of the law banning the IVF for Serbian <laughs> lesbian couple. So, right. I, I mean, it's right. totally absurd. Wow. So she's a good, Amazing. she's a good lesbian in inverted What's her colors. name? What's her name? Her name is Anna Bernabic, and she has okay. a UK connection. I think she did an MBA at Hull University or something like that. Oh. I'll tell you something so, about Hull University. Yes. I haven't been deplatformed from there, have you, Kathleen? Um, no, but someone in the philosophy department didn't like me very much. I do remember that. Okay. But then that's do. true of every philosophy department. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't narrow it down. The very first time I went to Montenegro was in the mid-1990s when the trafficking of women was noticed as a huge deal following the war and the end of communism and all of those reasons that uh, I'm sure we appreciate. And I was with a group of, as it turned out, actually, quite a few traffickers. I mean, there were police officers and um uh prosecutors but some of them were actually trafficking at the same time but what were we to know and the first thing that was said to me about the montenegrin character by these people and i don't accept it of course for one minute is we are all very lazy and the second (laughs) and the second thing that i was told that this thing that came out at lunchtime which was huge it was as big as a pillow was one of the most favorite national dishes. And you'll have to help me with this and forgive me if I get this completely wrong. I was just taking this in as a naive first timer in the Balkans. It was something like ham wrapped in cheese, wrapped in white sauce, wrapped in chicken, wrapped in more cheese, wrapped in more ham, wrapped in more of this. And it just, and it was this big. And with it, 
they seem to be drinking something like red wine with coca-cola oh yeah and, I've, I've had that right yeah. so i mean is it called calimocho or calimoco which is is that right because i, I was to told that's the, that's the first i hear of it so maybe they were pulling your leg i, I don't know <laughs> well, I, honestly i mean maybe they were all drinking it and maybe it was because someone had found a crate of red wine and some bottles of coke and they mm -hmm. decided this was the drink but then you know this just didn't quite ring true so i didn't get a sense at that time of the culture of montenegro of the richness of the culture and all that's good about Montenegro and its borders. I mean, what, what would you well, we say to, you like? We have to return. You ha we have to go mm. to the other. Yeah. I, d I don't go frequently enough. I like every few years I decide I really want to reestablish connections because I had this massive midlife crisis when my mom died thinking, Oh, I just cut the connections too radically. You know, when you're young, you just want to be free and you want sure. to get out of all mm. historically eventful region of the world and and your family and you just want to reinvent yourself and then we hit middle age and your parents start dying <laughs> you're thinking okay maybe maybe I need some roots um and every few years I try to reconnect but it's, I'm, I'm a stranger there now I don't have any connections right. familial connections are very important mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but but so I don't go as frequently I go about once a year once every two years but I'd love mm -hmm. to like so many wonderful real estate uh, along the coast is is only uh, impossible in, in hot tourist centers there's a lot of small towns with old palazzi where which can be bought for tens of thousands of euros and stuff. I mean something like that would be nice you know right. retreat for, for lesbian lesbian writers retreat for, yes. um, in, the, in the bay of Boca that would be very nice that would work yes sort it out for us Lydia come on yeah we're relying on you I mean, what, what happened when you decided to move to Canada? Had you visited and what did you know about it? Because obviously we're talking about night and day, aren't we, culturally in many ways? Mm. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of, about it. it it's, um, I found, this is this is just as the internet was starting, I found a few universities and it's a blue book that uh, Americans use called Peterson's Guide, which tells you what each university does in terms of graduate programs. And I found some here. The Americans had, had GRA, which I didn't want to bother with, so I never applied to the U.S. But the Canadians didn't ask for GIR. It's a standardized test, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just applied to a couple of Canadian universities. Got a got a cool scholarship for um, this regional university in Atlantic Canada in Halifax, and which is highly Scottish and Irish. Like I, I think I was the only immigrant there, wherever I would go. Uh, I think it's now a bit better. So um, I just up and left. I don't know. I would I have done what I do it now? Probably not. I'm a bit more cowardly. I just up and left. Had no family. Had no friends. Wow. Uh, and had this uh, scholarship. So you know, I was 25. So that's. I mean, that's the age when you do things like this. Yes. You up and go and. Yeah. So you um, if we move to Canada now, I mean, you're there now. And as I said in your, my intro, you've written a book about a kind of second look at the country compared to the perspective you first had when you arrived there. And you've got some quite critical things to say about it, as I understand it now. Is that is that fair? It's it's changed. I mean, like most of the Anglosphere, it's changed radically in the last five or six mm. years. And I don't mm -hmm. I, do we blame Americans for everything? I don't think so. I yes. Don't, 
I do. <laughs> yeah. Blame them for everything. Sorry, not not our listeners who are American in any who way. We, we love and we want more who of we you, love. by the way. In fact, we'll just take that bit out, I think. <laughs> Carry on. Do we blame the internet for everything, which of course speaks American? I don't I don't think we can. Uh so I mean you know what happened in the last seven years. Uh Basically, the basic tenets of liberal democracies were abandoned. Free expression mm -hmm. fell down from the highest value uh, uh, spot down somewhere to be lost completely. I mean, mm -hmm. the very fiction, the possibility of fiction, when you write characters that are not your ethnicity, they are not your sexual orientation, mm -hmm. they are not your sex, that is now highly contentious. So, I, I mean, are we going to say goodbye to fiction? Everything is going to be now documentary, like. And then Canada got obsessed in the last five or six years with the indigenous settler division. You know how Americans are obsessed with white and black? It's complete mm -hmm. fixation. And so Canada now has become settler and indigenous. Mm -hmm. and they renamed everything. What used to be a department for indigenous affairs is now called the Crown Indigenous Relations. So there's now this, this notion that indigenous people are their own nation and the state sovereignty stops at some point. So you have, I mean, mm -hmm. it's something that, I mean, maybe I'm too sensitive about these things because I, got, I come from the Balkans. I've experienced failing states. I've experienced failing yeah. sovereignty. I've experienced, you know, civil wars. I love for a state to have monopoly of violence. I would never say defund the police because I, I right. know what that means. Privatized security. Right. So it's all these mm -hmm. things and it's self-flagellation and just loss of belief in the liberal democratic project. And, Absolutely. Uh, kind of find yourself thinking, what is going on? Well, some of the uh, the indigenous women, the feminist activists, some of whom are lesbians, that I work with out in Vancouver, Toronto, um, and Kathleen's um, going to talk to Cherry Smiley. I think. Yeah, that's right. And I Cherry, am, yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and and I mean Cherry is is you know a really good example of someone who would just rather that something was done about violence against indigenous women than a 45 minute land right ceremony every time, uh, you know, we start a 30 minute meeting. It's just become partly virtue signaling. And I know there's lots of indigenous people getting really angry about it, but also this, and this is again from the indigenous feminists um, that, that complain about this, the way that some indigenous men are allowed to just deny and gloss over the terrible domestic and sexual abuse within those communities on the reservations, as though they are somehow just exempt from any criticism and, and policing. And this is what we have with closed communities in the UK, and we know that's elsewhere, you know, fundamentalist religious communities where the police consider what's happening to women and children as no-go areas. So there's a real problem, I think, with the way that the liberal sensibility, and I'd love to ask you about this, has created, in some ways, more danger for women and children because of this hands-off approach. Yeah, I think that's more progressive sensibility because I, I always thought liberalism was universalist, so it doesn't, it it's ethnicity blind. Of course, not as ideal, not in effect. That's one of the desired things. And one of the big problems, for example, with the with the missing and murdered indigenous women, and they mm. then they added two spirit, blah blah blah. It became about everybody. Yeah, I did. And men. I think Cherry did write about this really eloquently. Yes, yeah, she did. Um, uh, is that? I mean, who is the violence coming from? 
-hmm. Whenever an ethnic group is overrepresented among uh, victims, most of the crime is coming from the old, from their own ethnic group. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to raise that. And I, I can understand how some Indigenous feminists are pissed about that. Which is why, obviously, this whole romanticised notion that many non-Indigenous Canadians have, or many white people in general have, is the idea of the community leader or elder. It, yes. We never have community elders or leaders, really, spoken about in this way, who are white and European. It's, it's crazy to assume that older conservative men are going to somehow stop men within their reservation from beating or sexually assaulting the females within that. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, yeah, it's interesting. There was, just before the pandemic, we thought that would be a defining moment of Trudeau's government. When there was a big protest around, it's often about development. So indigenous people themselves are split on this. Some absolutely want zero development of gas and uh, any kind. I mean, uh, but greenhouse gas in particular, they don't want mm -hmm. pipelines, they don't want any, and mm -hmm. probably majority of them do want some economic development in, in northern regions. And they have two, they have democratically elected councils and they have in, inherited, uh, uh, it's not inherited, whatever is the word, it's when you, through family lines, you the lineage, the, the um, That's it. Patril patrilineal, anyway. And uh, although some, some have women, some have women now chiefs as well. So who were the progressives? So it's interesting with this West West uh, Canada group, which was very split on development, and they block, block, put block, put blockade on, on railways and they, and uh, uh, highways, and it was it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a thing. Um, the democratically elected councils were in favor, and the other ones were against. But who did the white progressives support as more genuinely indigenous? I mean, you can easily guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not the dem democratically. So there's, this notion, there's this notion that democratically elected uh, uh, leaders are, it's it's a Western imposition. Yeah. It's sort of a mystical, you know, it's a mystical choice how to choose your it's incredible exoticization, if that's a word, of uh, of people who are like who are mixed, ethnically mixed, and I think mm -hmm. immigrants have a lot in common with the indigenous indigenous population, uh, and I'm not mm -hmm. the only one who spotted that. But we're sort of slightly on the side of the mainstream culture, mm -hmm. uh, also some, not all, economically disadvantaged, uh, and we would have a lot in common. But no, there's nobody's talking about that. It's all about mm -hmm. divisions, differences, you know. Yeah, so the other um, area in which Canada seems to be uh, leading the world, if you want to put it that way, is in its adoption of um, gender identity over sex. Um, why do you think that was, that's uh, that was, such an easy move for Canada to make? That was so... First of all, keep in mind it's a highly decentralised country. There's a million jurisdictions. So... Uh, <laughs> And, and now we have human rights commissions. I don't, do you guys have human rights commissions? It's sort mm -hmm. of paralegal system. It's different. Can... It's different to your system, but it, it's similar enough for us to understand what it, what it is. You can make somebody's life really miserable if you take them to one of those human rights right. commission courts. Um, and it's there that people have taken people over gender identity. But also the other right. way, 
I mean, you will remember Jessica Yaniv. Who oh, how could we forget the ball waxing? Jonathan, I like to think of him as Jonathan. Jonathan Yaniv, the ball waxing <laughs> so he, monstrous. Yeah, he sued a beautician, several beauticians, mm. on low wages because um, they said that they offered female-only services and he said that he was a woman, so he should be uh, seen and he wanted them to do genital waxing. Um, so, you know, and he managed to really uh, ruin some of these women. They, they weren't yeah. able to carry on with their businesses. Um, so I, I can't remember what's happened to him now. I mean, he seems to have been in court a few times since. And I can't... Uh, can you remember exactly what happened there? It is quite a while ago. Did he, he did he, he win? Lost. He lost. He lost. Yeah. He lost that one. But it took it took quite a bit. It should have been thrown out immediately. No, he had yeah, a hearing. Of course. And it was really, really terrible for these women. Uh eventually he did he did lose. But and so people use these vexatious um mm -hmm. uh methods of making people's lives less miserable because the gender identity and gender expression was added to anti-discrimination laws uh maybe about seven years ago and everybody thought oh okay it's, it's just like gay rights it doesn't matter mm. <laughs> two years right. in it got pretty insane mm. uh but that that's unfortunate but i guess through practice i mean it's it's amazing what's happening with you with the employment tribunals i guess mm -hmm. something like that will start will start happening here so there's some push to back and it has be, to. I mean, I've been involved in uh, as an expert witness in Amy Ham's case. Uh, she's unfortunately being um, uh, taken to a tribunal by her professional body, a nursing body, um, for some tweets, basically. I mean, I won't say too much about that case. I'm pretty sure everybody knows um, about it. If you're interested in gender critical stuff, you'll have heard of Amy Ham. But um, that's another example of where somebody is saying pretty straightforward things that almost every Canadian would agree with, I think. At least they would have done 15 years ago. <laughs> and is now, you know, that her own professional body is really trying to um, shut that down and discipline her for saying what I think are quite innocuous things. Yeah, the, yeah. the professional bodies and licensing bodies, that's, that's very dangerous. I mean, you know, the Jordan Peterson was ordered to... <laughs> to undergo social media training. I mean, I'm not worried about Jordan Peterson, but let's say midwives and some midwives association, I think that mm -hmm. is also completely captured. If you want to be a midwife, it's, it's going to be very difficult mm -hmm. to use the word mother and, and things like that. And it goes back to the 1990s. Look at when Kimberly Nixon, the, the man who identifies as a trans woman, started hounding Vancouver rape relief through the courts then using the human rights. Yep. Yeah, uh, body. I mean, it, it's just been hell for them, yeah. and it is. I'm, I'm so glad they won, though. It's so great. It it's so good that they won, but the hell that those women and their service users had to go through is yeah. it's just inconceivable. Yeah. But yes, good for them. And still, they would use bits of funding occasionally if somebody wants. And to they got defunded in the end, didn't they? I thought Morgan Oga defunded. Yeah, they lost city funding. Because of him. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mosaic of funding provincial, city, and their own fundraising. So the city funding covered some education programs, I think, and they That's lost right. it. That's right. It's, it's, it's monstrous. 
But do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Because I've been there a couple of times last year, once to Vancouver and then to Toronto, and it's off the scale. The lesbians I spoke to there just have no lesbian space that they can call their own at all. They hang out in each other's houses, like we used to do in the 1980s before we had any bars or clubs that would let us in and guarantee our safety, or at least, you know, where we felt vaguely safe. What on earth do you think will happen? Well, I was I was very happy to hear from that you met some young lesbians in Toronto. They were great. I mean, obviously they are meeting incognito, but I think that's the first stage of them planning and setting up something that's more public. And the more women that speak out and the more women that dare to do that and the more women that do legally challenge the batshit crazy laws that don't allow them to do it or that get them picketed and targeted and harassed by trans activists, the better it will be. And I think that there's a, in my view, a, a new generation of lesbians who are feminists who are refusing to stand for this. They recognize this is something that affects all women's rights everywhere, not just lesbians. Oh, that, mm. that just sounds wonderful. I, I have this uh, 12 year old that I'm mentoring through this big brother, big sister program. And she's not even Zed, I think she's alphabet. If you're 12, you're Generation A, right? You're back to. I don't know. I don't know revert how to like, like Who um, knows? vehicle yeah. license plates. Go back to the beginning. <laughs> it's very uncool. Like I, I always thought is exaggeration. Like kids identifying as furries, kid, kids identifying as cats. She she tells me it's true. There's a lot of fur. I mean, they don't understand there's a sexual component to furryhood. They just think you identify <laughs> as a, as an animal. Like I I didn't. I, so there's people, oh, yeah. there's some non-binaries, but it's highly uncool. Like it's very like, oh, I, I can't deal. I can't deal with non-binaries so, and crazy people who identify as a cat. So I like that. I like hearing that. It's becoming uncool. Well, that's a big picture, I would say. I don't know. I just, um before we move on, I do want to say what something that you already referred to, which is that I will be in Canada in, uh, for anyone, any Canadians listening, I will be in Vancouver um, giving a public talk with Cherry Smiley and two other amazing uh, lesbian feminists attached to the Vancouver Lesbian Collective in March. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Right, so let's talk about lesbians and opera, Lydia, because opera is a specialist subject of yours, I know. Um, and is there in any way a particular affinity for lesbians and opera do you think or any special roles that lesbians tend to get tell us because we know nothing i know nothing i don't know if you're familiar with perry castle who wrote the mm -hmm. book the apparitional lesbian mm -hmm. she wrote this basically a fan she she teaches at stanford complete or something like that she used to be a regular contributor to the london review of books uh she was their lesbian correspondent uh but um she wrote this book and it was a collection of essays about different lesering in culture and one piece was about this german mezzo soprano who's now retired called brigitte fassbender who was very famous for her trouser roles i didn't know this when i read the piece originally but apparently she was a closeted leser and this piece <laughs> kind of Can with the fanning what? like trouser roll is can you explain what a trouser, trouser roll is roles. yes so so there is quite quite a long tradition in opera of 
women donning trousers, breeches uh, to sing roles. So some of them are inherited from the gastrati, which mm -hmm. were the divos uh, who sung what would we be now mezzo-soprano roles, very high, big lung capacity. They maintain every other masculine trait except uh, testosterone. So they, they remain treble voices uh, after the snip. Anyway, I shouldn't go into <laughs> too nope. much into the physiology. <laughs> We're not going back into that. <laughs> so they were rock stars of the 18th century and they were paid a lot of money. Uh, a lot of poor families had hopes for their kids. It was stage moms and dads basically would come from poor families, would spot a talent in a young boy's uh, in a young boy and then would do the operation and maybe become wealthy or not become wealthy. You could never you could never just guess. So all these roles were written for them and uh, when this practice finally sort of petered out, the last one was recorded on 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 vinyl. There, there exists a recording from 1920s of a castrato. Yeah. It's not a very I've heard good it. I've heard it. But uh, it was sort of outlawed, sort of it wasn't fashionable anymore. And then mezzos and altos took over these roles. And so you have fantastic stonking title roles for women singers, very active. You don't just get to get consumption and die. You get to court the lady, you have to fight in a war. It was just fascinating roles. And, and then there's another tradition. Yes. There's another tradition called entravesti, which is women. I mean, this is a familiar narrative device from Shakespeare. And you've seen it in straight theater too. Women who don male clothes have a bit of action, something happens. And then at the end of the thing, they take the clothes off and say, oh yeah, I, I was a woman. There was, I just, usually they come retrieve a, a stray fiance or they do, so they have, it's a function of the story. You you become a, so they, they go a little bit Vernesha. They do what needs to be doing and then they return to, a, to mm -hmm. the skirt. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of trousering in opera and there's some wonderful, wonderful roles where women court other women. And so from about mid 2000s to fairly recently, it was a massive blogosphere of lesers in opera who would just like a, write about these roles. We would, I, okay, I would have also traveled for roles. I went to Kleinborn with three other lesers to listen to Sarah Connolly sing Julius Caesar. For those that don't know, Kleinborn uh, is a private opera uh, company which makes Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House here in London, look like it's pennies to to go there. And it's always an opera fan or an opera aficionado's dream to go to Glyndebourne. Am I right, Lydia? And to have a picnic outside in the quite lengthy break and yes. with champagne. Well, everybody, and drinks. Yes. everybody drinks. Everybody drinks. Um, I mean, Glyndebourne is just like about three miles from here, and uh, my friends locally work there so they have a full dress rehearsal for most shows wow. they invite they can the friend people that work there can invite friends so i've seen some full dress rehearsals of various things mm -hmm. uh, for free just on the day before the first night which is pretty amazing what larks yeah yeah they, they don't get any government funding um well their touring program does but they don't get any government fund but the tickets are not excessively expensive i think i got this ticket 
they are. Pounds. They really are. Oh, so it depends. And I got this thing for ninety pounds. Yeah, well, yeah, but it depends. Like Don Giovanni or something. Or the, there's ones that sell out instantly, and the best tickets are three hundred, four hundred yes, pounds. Anyway, you can get. Sure. You can. If it's a modernist production, <laughs> you can. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the and the cheap seats in operas, it's not good. Okay, you're in a seat that's about two inches wide, and you're <laughs> on top of people. And the time I was there, a friend of mine, when I can't remember who it was, but a woman was um, playing a role who she fancied, somebody like Anne Sophie von Otter that all the lesbians fancy. And when the man came onto the stage to say, and he had an announcement, we knew what was coming, and my friend shouted, "Oh!" Fuck, and everybody <laughs> just—it's—it's it's not yet as mixed class, shall we say? No, it really isn't as, it really... as we would like it to be. I would bet no, it's not mixed class. It's true. Anyway, and classical classical music education itself is getting less and less accessible to anybody who's not. Uh, Maybe we should get back to the trousers, though. Trousers, yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, I mean, there's a few, a few. Uh, we kind of grew up, grew out of those blogs. I used to have a blog called Definitely the Opera. There's a still fantastic blog. A woman out of Germany uh, has been doing it for more than a decade. Called again, queer, queer lorgnette, but it's it's lesbian. It's lesbians in opera, and she would find these fantastic pictures of women kissing other women on operatic stage, and you know all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then it moved to uh, Tumblr with the younger people for a little bit, and then it's it doesn't exist anymore. So it was an interesting period for about a dozen years, where uh, there was some serious uh, blog opera lettering online. But it's very gay, isn't it? Certainly, Covent Garden is very gay, um, and I mean, clearly, the vast majority of of punters are wealthy heterosexual couples or groups of of women on a special night out. I don't mean like a hen night, I mean a, a very special night out. And I have seen a few lesbians at the opera, but not huge numbers, it has to be said. But I did see Jeanette Winterson, the author once. Yes, she's a fan, mm. she's a fan. Yeah, she loves the opera. And she was complaining because her royal box, it wasn't quite the royal box, but it was next to the royal box. Was, had been taken over by somebody else and she had reserved it and all hell broke loose. <laughs> I was in the gods. I was in the worst seat up right up on the top. Well, there's a, there's a very good production on DVD and Blu-ray of Carmen from Glyndebourne by, with Anne-Sophie von Otter. She has a red hair wig. And Je Jeanette wrote a copy for the DVD. It's a very serious yeah. essay by Jeanette Winterson. She she's wonderful. I went all the way to Paris once to watch Anne-Sophie von Otter. And again she didn't appear. Although somebody <laughs> I know, she must have heard about me, I wish. <laughs> but and then but her replacement was in the pit with the opera, with the sorry, with the orchestra. Um Della Jones, who is brilliant, she's wonderful. But Anne-Sophie, because she couldn't sing as her throat was bad. Did the acting? Oh, or she just Jones did the singing. I was wow. yeah, that sometimes happened. I that was furious. I, I left after the second interval and and found a bar. I was really not happy at all. It was crazy. No, I I was a massive fan of Anne Sophie von Otter. I did the big appreciation piece uh, 
when that was a thing that's slightly embarrassed by it now, but uh, it's on the all website. No, she Sorry. was, she had a huge. What has she got this woman that seems to get all the lesbians going? Like, why is she the one? She's very tall and she's a masculine, she's Swedish. So it's kind of already androgynous, very tall, incredible color, color of the voice and very believable in trouser roles. What would you add, Julie? Nothing, except for she never turns up when I go to see her. And if she's <laughs> listening to this, please do. Next time I've booked a ticket. A very highly tuned radar for stalkers. <laughs> we usually have a film or we often discuss a film, but you were saying that there's a new, um, uh, what would you say, a lesbian film coming out very soon? It's by a Macedonian Australian director. Uh, whose name I'm forgetting, I think his last name is Stolevsky, mm -hmm. whose parents, when he was a teen, left the Balkans and, and moved to Australia. And he made a couple of movies, I believe he's gay, made a couple of movies about the Balkans, uh, one of which is about two witches, an older witch and, an, and a younger witch that gets adopted by an older witch. It's just phenomenal uh, folk horror feminist, uh, filmed in, in deep Macedonia and southern Serbia. Uh, but this one, I think it's about a lesbian couple that gets married um, for papers, is my guess. One of them marries a man for papers. There, I can't figure out. It's it looks it looks fascinating. It has okay. Western money, so it's a co-production with various other um, countries. So it's called Housekeeping uh, for Beginners. That's it. That's it. Um, Coming but that, now you've said that, I'm I'm a bit disappointed because I. I tend to think men can't really make satisfying yeah. films lesbians. So um, I was more excited when I thought it was by a woman director, but we will, our listeners should list, obviously look out for that because still, it's still a film about two yeah. women. We'll give it so, a word. Yeah, jury's out. And, and we have we have the a landscape in Skopje, don't we, where much of the filming has been done, which is stunningly beautiful. I haven't been there for a long time. But is I'm that where it's set? That's, that's where, yes, that's, it's either where it's filmed or set or both. So that mm. looks really interesting. The time I was in Skopje that I'll never, ever forget was when I met with some women, all of whom were in very conservative peach skirt suits and, uh, and nice shoes, all of whom were carrying a handgun. What can I tell what? you? It was mm. the Wild West. But uh, <laughs> I, I love Skopje. What's this? This was in 2001, two. All of them were carrying a handgun. Wow. Yeah, hmm. said that it was the gangsters and the lawlessness was just off the scale. But, you know, who knows? Maybe they were the gangsters and it was a double bluff. Maybe. <laughs> and then two years later, the Serbian prime minister gets murdered by organized crime. So yeah, right. I, can, I can see that. Yeah. yeah, maybe it was the women in the peach suits. Okay, we've got to talk about lesbian bars, haven't we? Because, da-da, exciting news for East London, I think. Is that right, Kathleen? Um, well, I believe so. I read about it yesterday, but a lesbian bar has opened up in East London. Now, um, I don't know whether that's a real lesbian bar. <laughs> or, <laughs> actual lesbians. Uh, or a mixed sex space um, for people who think that they are lesbians. Uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's in Broadway Market and there's an Evening Standard article about it. But really, um, what we were going to discuss was, because um, we haven't been there yet, So, and actually I'm not exactly sure we'd be welcome. So <laughs> I go, why not? 
Yeah, but, um, some of the Instagram photographs seem to be some women sitting with their legs spayed very widely, wearing nothing but a thong. Oh, that sounds like, brilliant. That's bra. exactly so what You'll enjoy that, Kathleen. It's, you know me, I'm too much of it's one. It's well of known that I always sit like that. Um, but no, what we were going to talk about was an um, uh, incident in a lesbian bar in Manhattan that came out this week, which, uh, I mean, really, this isn't news exactly. It's basically like um, two people fell out in a lesbian bar, which is hardly unusual. Uh, but it's made it onto a website called Mashable because it sparked a TikTok debate about who should be in a lesbian bar. Um, so at this place, which is called Cubbyhole, um, a, basically a straight man came in with his straight friend and then the, the lesbian, challenge, a lesbian came up and challenged the straight man, not the straight woman who was there. Um, so... The question is really like, well, the question that this article is raising is who belongs in a lesbian bar? Should straight men be in lesbian bars? And I think that is a reasonable question. I think it's also obviously a little bit ridiculous given that in most lesbian bars these days, there are quite a lot of straight men, um, you know, who are basically calling themselves women and getting in that way, but never mind, let's leave that moment, that aside. Um, what do you think? Do you think lesbian bars should let straight men in? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, there should be a hardline policy. Well, I mean, obviously, you're not going to do a purity test at the door with the women that come in. No, that's one problem. And, you know, if they're saying, yes, of course, we're lesbians, you have to you have to do it in good faith. And certainly that's how it used to be before gender ideology took over sense and and logic. But I, I don't think that there's any space for men at all in lesbian bars. They have mixed bars. Lots of straight women go on their hen nights to gay bars to watch the creatures in the zoo. They have always done that. I've been in mixed gay bars and seen those women. And I do find it a bit irritating. And if straight men are in lesbian bars, in my view, they're not there for any reason other than perving. I don't think so. I think that's unfair. I mean, friend groups are large and they can have straight men, straight women, lesbians, and some lesbian can say, let's go to this bar. Um, and they might just want to be with their mates. I think you have to allow that they, that that seems to be what's happened in this case. Then they should have a mixed bar to go to where well, lesbians they are welcome. Like every single bar, there's every single other bar they could go to. Yeah, exactly. Stay away, boys. You've got your own spaces. We haven't. What do you think, Lydia? Well, we're outnumbered, aren't we? So it's not for business. It's not good for business. Uh, it's it's only less, only women. But maybe some kind of rule that if there is a man, they should bring three women. Something like that. Now, they have those rules in nightclubs in the in the north. Yeah, <laughs> Basically, they, they don't want too many men. So or women will get in free. Men have if, to pay. If That's lesbians what... knew that there were bars where they were going to be safe and they were going to be welcome, mm -hmm. then I think, well, I know from previous experience that they those bars will be packed. They will make a lot of money because lesbians drink, tend to drink. And mm. I, I think that they could fill those bars up just like they did in London, in all of those, there was a huge number of bars uh, right up until late in the 1990s and the early 2000s. 
before lesbian and gay became all one word. So I, I'm very hardline on this. I think we need our own bars. And if there's those lesbians that don't want to just hang out with other lesbians, fine. Just go to yeah. the mixed bars. I think, I don't know that you're right that they can make lots of money. I mean, I do know a couple that have tried recently um, and it wasn't easy. I don't, I think something did happen where lots of the people that used to go out and drink loads all got shacked up and stayed at home or I don't know, but you know, it became less, mm. uh, less of a scene for various reasons. And I'm sure it was partly to do with ground rents as well in those bars right. going up and stuff like that. But um, you have to really get a lot of footfall to make money. And I think what it does show is if they, if a lesbian bar does pop up in your neighborhood, you have a moral duty to go and drink there and yeah. keep going because you can't expect other people to do it. That's right. But the odd straight man can contribute to this <laughs> this process. Well, there's, there was a cafe I went to in um, Melbourne, in Australia, which was, a, which was run by feminists and it was very welcoming for lesbians, as feminist places tend to be. And men paid more than did the women. So if a man wanted a flat white... He paid about, you know, two Australian dollars more. Now, surprise, surprise, that cafe is no longer open. But it was kind of making a point that they earn more money and therefore they should pay more. But, <laughs> you know, these these things tend not to work. Yeah, that's quite an aggressive. Yeah, it was very aggressive, to be fair. And yeah. it was vegan. I oh, wow. No, I make no judgment. Well, I do. I do. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard from women. I've interviewed two women who owned a lesbian bar once. They had to go mixed because their theory is, I mean, it's true we have less money to spend, but their mm -hmm. theory is once you couple up, you go out much, much less. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. wouldn't go out, like in your 40s, you wouldn't necessarily have 10 girlfriends to go out with. Yeah. Your, your partner and you have uh, somebody else, maybe one or two people. So there's yeah. less, uh, less money. That's so true. I, and it's unlike gay men as well, because gay men, even if they couple up, they still go out because the, you know, the whole setup's different. Yeah, so that makes sense. So we just need to stop being such U-Haul um, stereotypes, mm. stop <laughs> shacking up with people immediately, stop pouring our whole lives into one person and get out and drink in public. Here, here. But before we end this fascinating conversation... We bring you a new sexual identity, listeners, because do you remember we promised we always would? Yeah, we did. And then we didn't prepare for this. So what are you going to no, say? We did, we did actually, Kathleen, but we mentioned it deep into two or three cocktails, which is... <laughs> oh, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Quite. But we are actually recording this on Valentine's Day. And so I would like to propose, let's hear it for the aromantics, because I personally loathe and detest Valentine's Day and all the trappings to do with it. Discuss. Well, OK, but so aromantics are, just be clear, can you remember who they are? <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone. I just assume that you, you automatically have oh, yeah, read on about it quite the a lot, Stonewall but... Guide. Um, so... Remember that we often talk about asexuality, which winds up one or two of our very, very loyal listeners. Either way, aromantics are those. Of course, this is coined by and promoted by the likes of Stonewall. They are people that can have sexual relationships, 
but never feel romantic. Do not assume an aromantic does have sexual relationships, however. So effectively, aromantics never feel romantic. But there is a caveat in there that says, do not assume aromantics do not fall in love. I am a bit worried and I'll I'll tell you why. I think we might have done them before. Have we done them before? <laughs> we it... haven't we haven't done them before. Because or is it just every gender identity and sexual identity is now merging into one pulsating identity in my brain and I cannot distinguish between any of them anymore. But I feel like we've ter- covered this territory. Anyway, I'll take your word for it and listeners can tell us. They wrong. can. Lydia, what's your view? I think you're mixing your demisexual. You did demisexual. Oh, okay. <laughs> Lydia obviously... is correct. <laughs> and that's very different, clearly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... Demisexuals at least have relationships, whereas aromantics apparently is being anti-relationship. Is that it? No, do not assume that they don't have relationships. <laughs> do not assume anything. Don't just, don't just... <laughs> but look, come on. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the trappings of valentine's day you can't go into a restaurant because it's why do you hate people people in love julie i don't hate people in love at all i hate the sickly just sugary (laughs) schmaltzy trappings that goes with the likes of valentine's day you walk past restaurants right i'm going to do this as an experiment tonight walk past any restaurant from nando's with young you know working class kids where he's texting and she's looking adoringly, hoping that she'll get some attention that night, to a really high-end French joint where he is forcing himself to drink a glass of wine when he wants a beer. And then he wants to just get back to the football. She is desperate for some special attention. She's done herself up like a dog's dinner. And it's just so plain to see. There's no conversation. Why so would you put on a public? If you're on a date tonight and you see Julie Bindle peering through the window at you, <laughs> scowling at the man you're with, <laughs> oh, I guess hating Valentine's is aromantic. Would you say that? Well, yeah, yeah Valentine's is aromantic. quite aromantic. Yeah, I would say Julie, you've come out as a big candidate here for the most aromantic person I know. I'm anti schmaltz. I'm not anti. Romance, romance in the true sense of the word okay what about you lydia how where do you fall on the spectrum of a romanticism <laughs> it's a spectrum of course <laughs> i guess uh fluctuating i'm fluctuating <laughs> aren't we all no, i think i'm a big romantic actually i'm very romantic That's like romantic yeah. what about mm. you kathleen where do you stand on the romantic front uh I'm I'm somewhere on the right. <laughs> somewhere on the well, that's been said about you before. It's also yeah. been said about me, possibly <laughs> about Lydia as well. I don't know where I stand on it. As you say, Lydia, fluctuating. Obviously, some some days I'm more Julie. Some days I'm more um, uh, I don't know, Juliet. <laughs> Let's wind this up with apologies to people who have deduced that two of us are quite hungover in this recording. <laughs> it's true. But I also I also had a very re- allergic reaction to some medication I took. So it's oh, a yeah. actually here. Yeah, yeah. No, you know that allergic reaction that we sometimes all get. Mm. Anyway, but it's been lovely talking to you, Lydia. It really it has, has been. Lydia. 
You've Thank been you a so superb guest. See you next week, Kathleen. See you next week, Julie.